Let's open in a word of prayer this morning or afternoon. This afternoon, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your love towards us. We thank you that you are worthy, Father. You're on your throne. We trust you. You defeated sin, death, and hell. No matter what we're going through today, there is victory. Even if the circumstances linger on, we can trust you in the midst of the trial, the tribulation, the question marks that loom in our human mind. We can trust you knowing that you are completely sovereign, that you are a good father, and you are working out all things for our good and for your glory. Father, I pray this afternoon that as we open up your word, that you would have your will and your way in our lives, that you would break down distractions, you would break down barriers, that if there is still sin in our hearts, that we would lay it right now, confess it at the foot of the cross, knowing that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we can go nowhere else but to you, the living word. You alone have the words of life. Where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. Father, we need life. We need your abundant life to breathe into our cold heart. Where the cares of this world drown out your glory dissension and the turmoil in our society have blinded us to the reality of your grace, the reality that your kingdom has come on this earth through your church and through your people. And you have chosen to use us to be the hands and feet of Christ, to be ministers of reconciliation in this world that we live in. So, Father, I pray that we would be reminded this morning of who we are. We are chosen. We are your child. That creator who has done all those things that we read about in Job this morning desires to know me. For the foundation of the world written my name in the Lamb's book of life because of Jesus. I pray that we would be reminded this morning in the midst of all the chaos, the hurt, that you are unfolding your perfect plan and story of redemption in this world. Today, you're, you're still drawing men and women to yourself and we are so thankful for that promise. So, Father, I pray that we would come to your word this morning with open hands, with open arms, with open minds, with open hearts, that we would receive the food of your word and we would feast on its goodness this morning, this afternoon. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter number 30. The title of our message is A Battle of Human Nature. A Battle of Human Nature. I tweaked my title just slightly um, after I, I sent out my little reminder. Uh, so our title is A Battle of Human Nature. And I want us to just pause for a moment and reflect on this reality that we are about to finish chapter number 30 of the book of Genesis. I don't know if we ever thought we would actually get that far, but, but here we are about to wrap up Genesis chapter number 30. And I wonder if you've recently uh, had a time to reflect on what God has taught you through this series. Seeing God in the early chapter, seeing God all throughout, but specifically seeing his nature and his person and work through creation. As we saw 
uh, him create mankind and the struggle of sin? Have you seen yourself in uh, your own struggles in this book of Genesis? As we've seen mankind make some really bad choices and rebel over and over and over again against the perfect will and commandments of the Lord. And we've seen consequences because of that, right? Uh, but yet we've seen a, a God who has not left his, uh, his special creation, his image bearers, mankind. He has not left them alone, but he has continued to seek them out. And he has desired to be in a covenant relationship with them. And we've seen that established through Abraham and passed on to Isaac and now passed on to Jacob. And we've seen, although these um, individuals are walking in covenant relationship with the Lord, we've seen that they uh, are less uh, than perfect, to say the least, right? That really, despite themselves, God has continued to maintain and sustain that covenant relationship with them. And here in Genesis chapter number 30, uh, we're going to see more of that God-sized relationship that he is holding on to us. And I hope by God's grace, we can resonate with uh, some very important takeaways and observations uh, this afternoon. So here we we are uh, more than halfway through this uh, book. And uh, we're coming up on uh, the latter portions as, as we transition the next few chapters, working through uh, Jacob's life and then transitioning in chapter 37 to Joseph. And then really Joseph uh, finishes out uh, the book all the way through chapter number 50. And so we're excited about continuing to work through this. I hope you're staying engaged in the study and in the series. Um, and I hope you're continuing to uh, find yourself and, and to learn more about your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through uh, this book of Genesis. So a battle of human nature. We have in our passage here this afternoon only two characters present. We have Laban and we have Jacob. However, it's in these two characters that we see a, a battle of sorts unfold between Laban and Jacob. And this battle that we're going to observe this afternoon, it's not fought with bows and arrows or swords and shields. It's, it's a battle that's fought within the depravity of their human nature. It's a battle of wits. It's a battle of deception. This battle that we'll observe in a very explicit way will reveal in a proverbial sense the weapons of deception and ambition and greed and manipulation. It will reveal the true condition of the human heart yet again. The true condition of the human heart is in a perilous predicament. It's sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we're going to see that generation after generation, individual after individual, every human being that will be born into this world will be plagued by this plight of sin. A depraved human heart that affects every facet of their life, every relationship that they will engage in will be impacted by this problem of sin. Condition of the human heart will be on full display yet again in the life of Jacob. And that true condition is not just describing Laban and Jacob, but it's for all humanity. That includes us right here today, you and me. So this afternoon, we're going to make some simple, but yet uh, what we're going to call timeless observations concerning the nature of mankind, human nature, the human heart. These principles of the heart of mankind that we will see present in Jacob and Laban, they will bridge this span of time. And as such, we too must be mindful of these observations of the human heart that we will call out because they will be present in our own lives as well. So the big idea of our text this afternoon is this, because it is human nature to pursue our own way. And can we agree that it is human nature to pursue our own way? Because that is true, we must surrender our lives before a sovereign Lord 
who desires to use us in this world for his glory. It's a big idea of our text this afternoon. I'll read it one more time. Because it is human nature to pursue our own way, we must surrender our lives before a sovereign Lord who desires to use us in this world for his glory. So the point of our text this this afternoon, I'll say it again, is simply that what is at stake this afternoon if we fail to observe the condition of the human heart? What's at stake this afternoon, today and the days ahead and for future generations? It is the glory of God. It's the glory of God. The glory of God is at stake if we fail to understand the human heart in a biblical sense. And not only understand it, but if we don't surrender that at the foot of the cross and receive grace and receive mercy and ultimately find healing for the condition of the human heart. There's a great exchange that God the Father offers on our behalf through Jesus Christ. And we're going to finish This afternoon, we're talking about the hope that we have, despite all of this bad news that I'm going to share with us this morning about the condition of the human heart. We're not going to leave on a low point uh, this afternoon. Our first observation is this. It is human nature to ignore the presence of God. It is human nature to ignore the presence of God. Let's read. Verse number 25 and verse number 26 of Genesis chapter number 30. It reads this. As soon as Rachel had had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. It's interesting as we observe Jacob over the last few chapters, he seems to have settled in in a sort of way to his position here in uh, employment within Laban's household. Leah is bearing him sons. His household seems to be expanding and prospering. But one thing is missing. One thing that he's been holding out on all this time, and it's what Rachel, the one whom he truly loves, has been barren all these years. Let's look back up to verse number 22 that Dave Welch preached through last week. Just a a quick comment and point on this. Verse number 22, then God did what? He remembered Rachel. I love that phrase. God remembered Rachel. And she did what? She bore a son to Jacob and they named his name Joseph. It's at this point that we clearly see our first point in Jacob's response to the provision of the Lord in the life of Rachel. What is his response? What is Jacob? How does Jacob respond to the provision of God in the life of his beloved wife, Rachel, and giving them a son, Joseph? He unilaterally demands release from Laban's household and seems to once again begin acting outside of the reality of the presence of of the Lord. So let's backtrack a bit even more. Why did Jacob come to Paddan Aram in the first place? He came there to find a, a wife. He came there to find a wife. That's the main reason he came. Secondarily, we know that he was fleeing his brother's anger, but for the most part, Jacob goes to Haran to find a wife outside the land of Canaan. The first woman that Jacob sees is Rachel. He knows that she's the one. He was tricked. Now he ends up with two wives and her sisters. And the sibling rivalry escalates as they long for Jacob's favor and affection. So here we are. Rachel now has Joseph. And Jacob seems to default back to familiar territory as he suppresses the presence and the reality of Yahweh as he plows ahead with his own plan, with his own purposes, and his own way. We see this universal and timeless principle still true in our own 
day. It is human nature to do what? To ignore the presence of God. Friends, just take account of your day, of your week, of your month, of your year. How many moments and minutes and hours and days and weeks of whatever span of time you are taking account of, how much of it is actually living actively in the awareness that God is on his throne and that he is sovereign, that he desires to use you in this world to do what? Make mature followers of Christ to the glory of God. How many moments within your day are actively spent in that reality? I would dare to say that the things of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the entanglements of responsibilities and schedules, going here and going there, it blinds us to this reality that God has placed us on this earth for a purpose. And for a reason, and by God's grace, we should be actively engaged in that purpose and in that mission. But friends, what do we too often do? We default to our own way, our own understanding, our own desires, our own interpretations of what we think we should be doing. We impose our sovereign will on scripture and we major on the minors and we neglect the majors that God says we should be engaged in. We see this not just in this passage as represented in the life of Jacob and we know it to be true in our own lives, but we see it throughout scripture. Romans 1 verse number 21, for although they knew God, mankind, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's human nature to know truth is only found outside of our being. But yet, despite this truth, what do we do? We run to our own understanding. Romans 1 says, although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. Does that describe your life? You understand the truth. You know the word of God, that he is the sovereign Lord, the creator of all things. But yet, what do I do day by day and moment by moment? I don't recognize him as Lord. I don't submit my will to his will. I do my own thing, my own way, my own time. These, these familiar verses out of Proverbs chapter number three. Do you remember them? Verses five and six. I'm also going to read verses seven and eight as well. Trust in the Lord. Proverbs three says with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. It goes on in verse seven. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I almost love seven and eight more than five and six. I don't know why we don't memorize those verses along with that. It will be refreshment to your bones and healing to your flesh. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. There is simple wisdom in the word of God that speaks to the reality of the human heart that too often we do what? We ignore the presence of God. We live in denial of his plan and his perfect will working its way out in this world. It's as if, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a, siblings that are getting on each other's nerves and maybe an older sibling is becoming slightly bossy to the other. That would never happen. I know older siblings don't do that. I'm a younger sibling, so I can attest that that is not true. Older siblings do boss us around just a bit. Uh, but have you ever observed two siblings interact in older getting on to the younger and the younger just had enough of it, Right. How many younger siblings do we have out there? Okay, can I get an amen? You guys have been there, right? You've had enough of it. The older siblings just getting under your skin. They just keep picking on you and they keep telling you what to do and they just won't stop, right? And then you have the younger sibling that they can't get away from the older sibling. 
The older sibling's bigger, faster, stronger, louder. And so what does the younger sibling do? They put their finger in the ear and they start singing la, 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 la. Have you, ever, have you ever seen that before? Maybe you did that as a younger sibling, as, as a moment of spite to your older sibling, right? You can keep bossing me, but I'm not going to listen. And I'm going to drown it out by plugging my ears and singing my own pointless tune. Right? If you've got that mental picture of that younger sibling with its fingers in its ears singing its own pointless tune, that in, in essence is many times how we are living in this world as disciples. At any given moment, potentially not following Christ, doing our own thing in our own way, not submitting to the will of God and simply putting our fingers in our ears and ignoring and living in denial of God's word and God's will, his commandments over our life. Proverbs 3 goes on all the way down to verse number 19. The Lord by wisdom did what? Founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens by his knowledge. The deeps broke open. Does this sound familiar to Job a bit? By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. I love the testimony of the wisdom there in Proverbs speaking against this timeless principle of the human heart that often we live in a manner that ignores the presence and the reality of God. Friends, God this morning, through his word, is calling us to wake up to the reality of who he is. To wake up and live and walk once again in, in, in the light of who he is and what he called us to do and to engage once again in his plan, in his purposes, in his ways, and to trust him for his timing when we're still unsure about what his will and way may be. Staying in Proverbs, Proverbs 16, verse 3 says, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Then down in verse number 9, the heart of man plans his way. It's good to be planful. It's good to be organized. But what are we doing? We're submitting our plans to the Lord. And it goes on and says, but the Lord establishes his steps. And he is the one that is sovereign and in control over our lives. So let's, let's plan, let's obey, let's exercise spiritual disciplines for his glory. But yet we trust and we wait and we're patient on the Lord, understanding that he alone establishes our steps. Friends, do you see the doctrine represented in these verses that we've chosen out of Proverbs this afternoon? Do you see here it is again, the sovereignty of God. In these passages, God's rule and authority, his sovereignty is thwarted by no one or no thing. But yet God is patient and long suffering to us. And get this, he uses the error of our way and the subsequent consequences that we often experience to do what? To recalibrate our hearts and our minds back to the Lord. Have we seen this in the book of Genesis where he has been patient and long-suffering with his covenant people? Abraham and Sarah. Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. All of the family units that this covenant promise has been passed through have grown weary and grown tired and have sought to take what? Circumstances into their own hands. In their feeble and finite understanding, they have chosen to help an infinite 
omniscient, all-knowing, perfect God. The irony of that, isn't it? And oftentimes when we just take a step back and we look at scripture and we're reminded of who he actually is. This is why doctrine is important because it should change our lives and ultimately should impact our actions as a result of a right understanding of who God is. And so if we understand that God truly is sovereign, if we understand that he truly is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, should those elements of the doctrine and the character of God, should that impact how I relate to him? Absolutely. Should that impact my choices in this world? Absolutely. Why? Because I understand that I am not the creator. I am the creation. So I submit, I surrender my will to a perfectly sovereign God. So what about you this morning? Afternoon, excuse me. It's probably not the last time I'm going to do that. Do you see this timeless principle of the heart of mankind in your own life? Are you ignoring the presence of God or are you actively operating in an awareness of his spirit? Are you actively engaged in his purposes and his ways? Maybe you aren't explicitly living in denial of God, but maybe your view of God has been degraded or diluted to a simple genie in the bottle. We engage with God when what we need him. I'm interested in prayer. I'm interested in an answer. I'm interested in scripture when I have a problem. But when that problem ceases to exist in my life, what do I do? I default back to my own way, my own understanding. Crisis sits, what do I do? I run back. God desires a consistent relationship with his covenant people. Good times and bad. Seasons of challenge and difficulty. Think of that song that we love here at Liberty Hills, as long as you are glorified. Shall I take from your hands your blessings, yet not welcome any pain? Shall I thank you for days of sunshine, yet grumble in days of rain? Shall I love you in times of plenty, then leave you in days of drought? Shall I trust when I reap a harvest, but when winter winds blow in doubt? Friends, as we look at the life of Jacob and the choices that he makes, we see the, the depraved condition of the human heart. We see a fickle human heart that is swayed by our own way, our own understanding, our own conveniences. So as soon as Jacob received what he wanted, Rachel and his son, he was ready to scoot, Right? He was ready to run. He was ready to do his own thing, to go back to his own country. Again, we don't see any consultation, prayer, worship, understanding, fasting. There's no altar. There's no time of of contemplation. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, he doesn't spend time with Rachel. Conjecture. What does he do? He goes to Laban. I've got my son Joseph Laban. I want out. I'm going back to my country. And verse number 26. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. Second observation this afternoon is this. It is human nature to desire more at the expense of others. It is human nature to desire more at the expense of others. Let's read on to verse number 27. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Our attention turns now to the depravity that is exposed in the life of Laban. 
verse number 27, to be honest with you, is a bit of a mess as far as interpretation and understanding. Laban seems to be in a bit of a panic. He's completely unprepared for this conversation with Jacob. And we're going to break down why we can uh, see that in his response here. So knowing what we know about Jacob, we can't help but think that his catching of Laban off guard was more than likely intentional. Right? He's a schemer. He's deceitful. He's got a plan that he's typically always working. And so he catches Laban off guard and he confronts him. What do we see from Laban is really this uh, melting pot of human emotion, as I'm going to describe it. Let's read verse number 27 one more time. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight. We see Laban's initial response seems to be fairly solid as he humbly states, if I have found favor in your sight. That sound familiar? That phrase? We've heard it uh, actually in Genesis in chapter number 18. We will see it in other places in Genesis. We see it in the Old Testament, New Testament. This is a common literary structure. If I have found favor in your side. It's typically demonstrating the humility of an individual that is coming before somebody of higher authority. And it is a, a, a cultural way to attribute uh, respect on that individual that they are going to. Right. As you can imagine. Right. I'm, I'm coming before somebody in higher authority or higher esteem. And, and I'm going to introduce myself by way of this statement, if I have found favor in your sight. And more often this, more often than not, this statement is followed by what? What's it followed by? A request, right? Can, can you picture this in scripture? If I've found favor in your sight, I'm humbly coming before you and I'm now going to make a request, right? We see this in in Genesis chapter number 18, verse number one, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Right. There's the disposition and the posture of humility. What does he do? And said, oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight. And here's the request. Do not pass by your servant. Do not pass by your servant. This is a common structure. We don't see this structure playing out in its normal format here in verse number 27. Out of the words and lips of Laban. Laban, on the other hand, he's in a panic. He seems to be grasping for how he should address Jacob in this very moment. He leads with humility, maybe trying to set the stage and try to warm him up a little bit. He, he, he's responding to this reality that Jacob, the one that has prospered his household and prospered his flocks, Jacob, his ticket to ride, so to speak, is attempting to leave his household. Employment. He's given in his notice right here, right? He's given us two weeks. He's saying, hey, I, I want out. Laban is concerned, to say the least. So he leads with humility. Now, what does he do? He hits the pause button on this common literary structure. He doesn't finish it by way of a request. What does he do? He hits the pause button and then introduces this potentially troubling statement. It's, it's a difficult word. Uh, to really understand the grasp of, but he learned by what? Verse 27, divination. This is another one of those difficult Hebrew words, if I'm being completely transparent with you. Um, it has multiple contexts and applications and, and translations. Uh, this comes from the verb, the Hebrew verb, uh, nakesh, which can be translated as a foretelling it has 
some roots in some sorcery or enchantment. And he even had the idea of an omen uh, brought about by this word. But it also can be used in the context of a divine revelation. So the source of how Laban attained this knowledge, what was the knowledge that he uh, came to the conclusion of? That he has been blessed as a result of being associated with whom? Jacob. So we'll leave the, uh, the source, whether it be a, a dark or a divine source, we're, we're not sure. We do know that there would be um, potentially some presence of some ungodly activity. It's very possible that, uh, that Laban potentially was dabbling in, in something that would be ungodly. Uh, but at the end of the day, we don't necessarily know. It doesn't necessarily impact the meaning of the text, but we do know that Regardless, that Laban is grasping for something to keep Jacob in his household. So let us focus in on that. Right? He leads with humility. He hits the pause button. He says, uh, I, I've, I've been given this knowledge by way of divination that I've been blessed because of you. So he's, he's trying to uh, powder Jacob up a little bit. He's trying to pump him up. He's trying to make him feel good about what he's done. And so Laban is attempting to engage with Jacob in a way that would be what winsome. It would keep him around just a bit longer. So Laban then finishes with his frantic response by way of defaulting to what has worked best for him in the past. And what is that? Laban has bargained with Jacob and Laban has benefited greatly as a result of deceitfully bargaining with Jacob. And so you can see in plan A, plan B, plan C, he's bouncing around with how do I close out this conversation with Jacob? How do I, how do I posture myself in a way that uh, is winsome, but yet I get what I want? Are you getting that sense within Jacob and how, or excuse me, within Laban and how he's engaging with Jacob? So if in doubt, Laban defaults to what? Stick with the fundamentals of bargaining. And he puts out this, this final plea. Hey, Jacob, I don't know whether I should come to you humbly. I don't know whether I should leverage the will of the Lord and him giving me this knowledge that, that you have, I have been blessed because of you. But at the end of the day, name your price and I'll give it. He's laying all his cards out there and saying, I need you to stay. All the success, the growth, the prosperity, the convenience, the comfortableness, it's all at risk. And Laban is certainly panicking. It's human nature to desire more at the expense of others. Do you see this in Laban? He's already been blessed. His household has been expanded. His flocks have benefited greatly as a result of Jacob being here now for these 14 years, working under the household of Laban, faithfully serving. Jacob certainly got more than he bargained for with not just one, but two wives. Now Jacob has sons. His household is expanding and Laban isn't satisfied. Do you see that there? Do you see him grasping onto this? He wants more. Do we see the human condition, the human heart displayed here in Laban? And more importantly, do we see that displayed in our own life? There's this dirty word called contentment. I know Americans don't typically know it well. The American dream is completely opposite of, of being content, right? It's whatever you want, you can go get it. Whatever you've achieved, there's always more on the horizon to just go and be happy. You struggle with that. God is speaking out to us through this depraved response of Laban, and he's reminding us of, our, of the ugliness of our own heart that is reaching for more, grasping for more. More zeros on the end of our bank account. 
a fully recovered and fat 401k. Bigger house. You fill in the blank. What is it for you? What are you longing for? What are you searching for? What is uh, uncontent in your life that you just, maybe even quietly in your heart, are bitter, angry, dissatisfied? It's impacting how you're managing the resources that God has given you now. It's impacting how you relate to others. Becoming covetous of others, looking at their success, looking at what they've been able to accomplish and gain in life, and you simply want more. The third observation is this. It is human nature to deceive others for for strategic advantage. It is human nature to deceive others for strategic advantage. Remind ourselves, Jacob has been on the receiving end of Laban's deceit. And he understands that he has, Jacob, the upper hand in this moment. In previous bargaining conversations, Jacob was coming to the table hoping that Laban would ultimately give him what he wanted. Right? Laban complied and said, yeah, if you work seven years, I'll give you one. And then he says, oh, I was just kidding. You know, he, he pulled the card of, of the custom and, and he gave Leah. But if you really want, Rachel, you can work for me another seven years. And then we can really have a deal this time. Laban had the upper hand in the previous engagement. And now Jacob is in the driver's seat. Just go around. Jacob has the upper hand. What does Jacob do knowing this? He pats himself on the back a bit. You see this in verse number 29. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I prosper for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled, spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. What was Laban's response? Good. Let it be as you have said. Interesting dialogue and exchange here, is it not? So Jacob, again, he pats himself on the back. He builds on Laban's broken admission that he needs Jacob to stay a bit longer. Why? Because Laban, like we said before, he wants more. But there's a big shocker here. Who else wants more? Jacob wants more as well. This is where the battle of the human nature really comes into full view. You're seeing blow after blow, counterpunches, hooks, uppercuts. These two men that are fighting for more are duking it out right here in Genesis chapter number 30. Jacob leverages the testimony of his impact and influence on the household of Laban and begins to do what? He sets up his own tangled web of deception that will linger on into the coming chapters. You see, friends, Jacob initiates an intentional plan to deceive Laban for his own strategic advantage. Wow. Jacob's own father-in-law, Laban. Jacob is attempting to take 
his legs right out from under him as he moves on in this plan of deceit. This has to be where all the in-law jokes and all the poor relationships between the in-laws, I don't know. This is pretty rough, isn't it? When you think about it. I mean, this is a family unit here that are just pulling one over on each other every single turn, every single verse. This just gets more and more convoluted here. But as we look at Genesis 30, and certainly all joking aside, I, I can't help but see the horrific effects of selfish ambition unfolding before us. Son-in-law, father-in-law, just giving in to their impulses of pride and selfishness and ambition and personal gain. I have no care for the other. I have no compromise in mind. They are seeking only their own will in their own Amazing thing about all this mess that we see right here in this stage of Genesis 30 is that it really hasn't even hit the climax yet. As we move on to chapters that will come, the consequences and the impact will linger as dissension and turmoil will plague not only Jacob's household, the conflicts and the deception of Laban and Jacob and Leah and Rachel, they will ripple through the, to the children and generation beyond themselves. Friends, here's the reality of sin is that it typically never just impacts ourselves. It has an impact. It has a ripple effect. There are not just consequences that will impact me personally for my day and my time, but get this, it could impact future generations to come as a result of my choice to choose my way. My selfish ambition can impact the lives of my children and grandchildren and beyond. The consequences of deception and stealing and cheating Lying and manipulating. Friends, this should cause us to take a moment of pause when we are tempted to give in to the Satan's tactics. When there's a moment of temptation to take just a little bit more for myself instead of deploying biblical contentment. To fudge those numbers on my taxes. It's coming up soon, isn't it? To take a little bit more from work. To manipulate my standing within my company. To put somebody else down so that I can be perceived higher and better and more successful. Friends, these aren't just examples. These are realities that go on every single day in a world. And my prayer is that it would not be said of us the depravity of the human heart, the human nature is on full display here in this latter passage of Genesis chapter number 30. And friends, I pray that we're learning from it, that we're seeing it. We're taking notes. We're taking account of our own heart. Here's the reality of sin, friends. It deceives us into thinking that we can handle it. That we can deceive others and privately take advantage of that relationship without them even knowing. But have we not learned this afternoon something very true about God in the last few weeks? That because he is omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing, and he is omnipresent, meaning he is all-present. The Lord sees the heart and knows the heart. He searches our motives and knows the inner working of our depraved mind. We see this in Psalm 139, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down, you know, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or should I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. 
I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Friends, this is the reality of our God. Let's not deceive our own selves by thinking that we can control sin, that we can hide from God in our sin. I.e. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We've, we've covered that. We, God knows our sin. Why? Because he desires to be in intimate fellowship and relationship with his people. And when we actively engage in sin, we can't be in fellowship, intimate fellowship with God. And so he knows, he knows that, friends. He's all-knowing. Let us not play games with the God of this world, the God of this universe, the creator of all things. Let us submit to the reality that he knows our hearts. With that said, verse number 33, let's read it. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs if found with me shall be counted stolen. Jacob seems to further mask his deceptive plan by highlighting the integrity of this deal. What does he do? He gives Laban the perception that he has just secured the upper hand on Jacob on himself. He's presenting the deception of his plan in a manner that Laban would view this as, hey, this is a great deal. You only want the spotted and freckled lambs? Done. Sign me up for this deal. So Jacob has laid out his terms. But in the background, he's seen another opportunity for strategic advantage over Laban and Laban really has no choice but to accept the terms of Jacob's deal, thinking at first glance that this is great for him. We see in verse 34, Laban's response, good, let it be done as you have said. This brings us to our fourth observation. It is human nature to manipulate circumstances for personal gain. We see both Laban and Jacob know that each of them is looking to pull one over on the other. I, I, there's no way I could maintain a relationship with these circumstances between Jacob and Laban. Just knowing that there's just at any moment active deceit and manipulation going on. Could you imagine trying to relate with somebody in this way on a regular basis, let alone living in the same household, being engaged in economic enterprise together? My goodness, it would be difficult. But yet each of them have this understanding with each other that I'm just trying to outwit, outsmart, outgame this other individual. Laban has been proven to be less than trustworthy and the same could be true of Jacob. Certainly we, we've seen that both of them have a, a black eye, so to speak, in the character of their integrity. So what do we do with these verses of 35 through 42, in, in light of this reality that is human nature to manipulate circumstances for personal gain, very similar to point number three, but it's got a twist, right? What was point number three? Point number three, it is human nature to deceive others for strategic advantage. You're deceiving others for strategic advantage. It's human nature now to manipulate circumstances for personal gain. I'm now looking for my own gain, my own personal benefit here of what I can get for myself. I'm manipulating a relationship and now I'm manipulating circumstances. So Laban is operating with his understanding in a silo of his own wisdom and his own plan of deception and believes what does Laban believe he can do here in these final few verses? Laban believes, based off of his actions, that he can minimize the gain that Jacob can achieve by simply doing what? What does Laban do here? Let's, let's read verse number 35. But, so they make a deal. Jacob sets his terms. Laban agrees. What does Laban do? But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and 
spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. He can minimize the gain that Jacob can achieve by simply doing what? Taking all the livestock that can naturally produce offspring that would or could be accounted to Jacob under the terms of his agreement. He's just going to manipulate the circumstances to ensure that what? Jacob has to work real hard and to, to achieve any type of herd of his own. It's going to be limited. It's not going to be much of anything to speak of. And therefore, I'm going to be okay. So what does he do? He takes all these livestock three days journey away. There's an incredible span of distance to ensure that Jacob and his quick wittedness and deception has no way to get his little fingers of deception into this herd. And he has given those livestock over to his sons to take care of. What does Jacob do? Jacob counters with his own scheme and produces some sort of uh, what many believe is a natural or herbal blend here. Uh, this, there's some interpretations that talk about um, potentially Jacob being involved in, in some type of um, just ungodly type of worship or sorcery that would allow this to come about, but I think we just read this literal, like we said we would do from the very beginning. He takes some herbal natural elements. He's able to make some type of brew or concoction, put this in the water, and it's going to uh, accelerate the mating process of the livestock, right? Nothing more, nothing less. That's what it says. And so that's what is going to be our interpretation. So he makes this, this natural blend of these uh, herbs and natural elements that would promote, again, mating behaviors in the livestock. In doing so, Jacob would ensure he was able to accelerate the growth of the flock that had just uh, been what, what Laban viewed as the leftovers of the flock. Being conscious of time, I'm going to just make some final comments on our fifth and final point, which is this. It is human nature to glory in the spoils of our own striving is human nature to glory in the spoils of our own striving. I was trying to think of an illustration that, uh, that would bring this point home. And, uh, I don't know. I can't remember when it was. Uh, I, I watched some type of compilation of, uh, sports celebrations, that were one moment too early. You guys ever seen any of these before, right? It's 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 the guy that uh, you know starts to let up as he's running across the football field. He's crossing the ten, the five, the four, the three, the two yard line, the one yard line. He lets up. He he takes the ball out from that complete safe tuck and he brings it wide to celebrate. And what does he not realize is right behind him a speedy defender who is coming out and knocks that ball out of his hand. Or even worse, the one who drops the ball before he crosses the threshold of the end zone, thus not scoring a touchdown, thus creating a fumble, allowing the other team to pick up that ball and to run the other direction. Right? Have you ever seen some of these where somebody has celebrated too early? There's every sport you've seen them where somebody just got a little too confident, a little too cocky, and as a result, they were horribly disappointed by way of their, their choice to celebrate yet too soon. This is human nature. It is human nature to glory in the spoils of our own striving and our finite minds and the glory of our selfish ambition and the pride of our own accomplishments, we can almost celebrate a bit soon, realizing that we have nothing to celebrate at all, right? Just like that touchdown that we thought we scored was really null and void. It didn't score anything at all. Hebrews says, choosing rather to enjoy the... Uh, 
the struggles with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. While we can enjoy in our own gain and our own accomplishment, it might have pleasure. It might have a dollar amount. It might have something that we could put on the wall, something that we could glory in. But guess what? It is temporal in its nature. It is temporal in its nature. Just like the seasons of this earth come and go. Spring, winter, summer, fall. A pleasure fades into the distance quickly. Because why? It's earthly in nature. We haven't trusted the Lord. We haven't followed his will, his timing, and his way. And as a result, it is human nature to simply glory in the spoils of our own striving. I think of... Proverbs chapter number 16, once again, as we consider this idea of glorying in our own ambition. You remember Proverbs chapter number 16, verse number 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 11, verse 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Final one, Proverbs 18, verse 12, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. You see in verse number 43, thus the man increased greatly. This is Jacob and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. You see this proud spirit in the disposition of Jacob back in verses 29 and 30, Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. The Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. It's almost as if the Lord's blessing was an add on to the actions of Jacob as opposed to Jacob viewing them as the very source. Friends, there's a battle of the human heart here in Genesis chapter number 30, but there's a battle of the human heart in our own life, our own context, our own family, our marriages, our relationship with our kids, relationships within the church as covenant members, with our employers in the church, outside the church. The depraved human heart is can be alive and well if we allow it to be. Friends, there's hope. There's hope for us. Why? Because Jesus Christ has defeated sin, death, and how greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So we know that although we have a depraved human nature that we still will be plagued with this side of eternity, we can walk in the spirit and therefore not fulfill the desires of the flesh. The selfish ambition, the discontentment, the shame, the anxiety, the struggle, we can lay that at the foot of the cross and there can be peace in our life by surrendering our will in our way a sovereign Lord who desires to use us for his glory. I think of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify not yourself, not your wisdom, not your way, not your understanding, but glorify your Father which is in heaven. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore I eat or drink or whatever I do, do all To what? The glory of God. Let's point the attention away from ourselves and back on to the holy God that has loved this world, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die and shed his blood on the cross of Calvary so that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is what our world needs to hear. This is the hope that they so desperately need. And friends, guess what? We have the good news. We have the reconciliation. We have the comfort. We have the grace and the mercy that we've received. We have it and we can offer it by God's grace to others in our sphere of influence. Let's close in a word of prayer this afternoon as we transition now to our communion time. Father, we thank you 
once again for your word. I pray that as we've observed this battle for uh, this battle of human nature in the life of Laban and Jacob, I pray that you will expose in us maybe the nooks and crannies of our heart that we've allowed sin, we've allowed selfishness, discontentment, we've allowed our own way and desire uh, and arrogance to just go left unchecked. I pray that this morning would be a revealing uh, afternoon, excuse me, that we would see you work in and through our lives. Father, I pray as we now look to the cross, as we reflect on and remember Jesus Christ, I pray that we would oh, how remember how wonderfully this sermon fits together with the hope of the gospel, that although there is a depraved human heart, there is a loving Savior who has paid for that sin with his very life and blood. And so it's that that we remember, it's that that we celebrate. And Father, I pray now as we transition to this communion time that you would be high and lifted up and that you would be glorified. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.